Welcome to Biblical Foundations, a podcast of the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm your co-host, Quinn Mosier, along with Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. Join us as we discuss issues in biblical scholarship for the church. Well, thank you for joining us today at Biblical Foundations. We continue our series walking through John's gospel by looking at chapters 7 and 8 today. In this episode, Dr. Kostenberger covers the events that took place at the Feast of Tabernacles, such as Jesus' engagement with his brothers, the supposed pericope of the woman caught in adultery, and Jesus' dialogue with the Pharisees. So listen in now to episode 58, The Feast of Tabernacles. And so we've seen that um, in chapter 6, uh, there was that watershed moment, moment of many of uh, Jesus' uh, disciples uh, basically leaving, no longer following him. And then in chapter 7, uh, you see Jesus briefly at home with his brothers, an intriguing scene. It's reminiscent of, of the way Jesus interacted with his mother at the Cana wedding at the beginning of chapter 2. It's quite clear that Jesus' brothers don't, at least not yet, believe in him. Uh, they urge him, you know, to make a name for himself in Jerusalem, and the, we're not going to take the time to, to study that in depth. Uh, but like his mother, Jesus' brothers misjudged the timing of when Jesus was going to reveal himself and also his motives. Uh, you know, he's not about making a name for himself. Uh, so... When you look at the midway point of the book of signs, right, the juncture, right, 12 chapters, end of chapter 6, beginning of chapter 7, the picture is actually quite bleak. And I know that in some of the publications I refer to uh, the failure, or at least the apparent failure of Jesus' mission. And I've gotten a little bit of gentle pushback from people who've said, what, are you saying Jesus was a failure? Well... No, but in human terms, if you judge, you know, uh, resonance by people's response, at this point, you have to admit, uh, Jesus doesn't have a lot to show for his efforts, right? Other than the 12, who are the the sole bright spot here. Uh, Many of his disciples leave him, even his own family. And so I think John intentionally, right, it's not a uh, coincidence that those two uh, narratives are juxtaposed. It's showing that that unbelief persists in Jesus' own family, even among most of his closest followers, with the disciple, with the 12 being the only exception, and even there, one of them is a traitor. Important ministry lesson here, I think. It ought to give us pause, you know, any of us who think that failure is necessarily an indication that we're doing something wrong. Or conversely, that success necessarily means we're doing something right. I mean, maybe so, but maybe not. Because Jesus did everything right. He backed up his messianic claims with a series of startling signs, and yet he was met with massive unbelief. So I think some on the mission field will tell us similar stories, that sometimes the field is hard, and... uh, The harvest is relatively meager, and yet faithful witnesses born. So there's different ways 
uh, we might gauge success in the kingdom. Uh, so the festival cycle that began with the healing of the lame man and the feeding of the 5,000, as we've seen, chapters 5 and 6, uh, continues and concludes with four chapters, 7 through 10, that find Jesus at two additional feasts. It's the festival cycle, right? Tabernacles in 7 and 8, and then the Feast of Dedication or Hanukkah is mentioned at the end of chapter 10. And these four chapters cohere rather tightly. Uh, at the very end, I'm going to have a just trying to be practical here, a suggested preaching outline of the festival cycle. So, so um, you know, um, stay with me here. Uh, chapter 7 and 8 are in some manuscripts separated by the so-called pericope of the adulterous woman. As you know, those scholars are virtually united, and I hope you all agree, uh, in their belief that the story was added later and was not originally written by John. And uh, in my notes here, which I'm hoping like last year's, so if you missed last year, you can go to Midwestern Journal, where it was published in the spring 2019 issue. We're hoping to do the same thing this year, where we have kind of a, a written out manuscript of, of all three lectures combined into one article. Uh, so in, in my notes there, I already have a fairly substantive footnote justifying text critically why uh, I think it's John 7:53 to 8:11. The pericope of the adulterous woman is not original. Um, can't give an extended rationale here. Uh, but if you exclude that, then chapters seven and eight uh, cohere very nicely and show jointly how Jesus initially delayed going to the festival, but then later on uh, went. He appeared in public both at the midway point. And so that's how you have the division, uh, 7.13 to 36, and then also on the final day of the feast, 7.37 to 39. And then, seamlessly, uh, Jesus engages in a second teaching cycle, which culminates in his affirmation that he preexisted Abraham. Remarkable. Before Abraham was, I am. That's kind of the climax of chapter 7 and 8. And then just... Giving a brief survey, uh, there's hardly a tr transition in 9-1. It just says, as he passed by, Jesus encounters a man who had been born blind. And then, incidentally, there's again virtually no transition in chapter 10. So I think the chapter division here in our English Bibles is partially misleading because it suggests that this is now a kind of a brand new story, which it isn't. Really, chapter 10 seamlessly follows literally seamlessly follows on, on chapter 9. Um, and of course, since tabernacles, right, in chapter 7 and 8, uh, is celebrated, as I mentioned earlier, in September or October, and then dedication is in December, chapter 7 through 10 are in a fairly compact time frame. So the plot is thickening, and the narrative gaps get smaller and smaller. John includes more and more material as we get closer uh, to Jesus' final week. Um, so uh, the setting then, uh, chapter 7, the first 13 verses. Uh, and this would be a good case study of how John portrays Jesus as fulfilling the essence of those different uh, festivals. The Feast of Tabernacles... Uh, it's also called the Feast of Booths, celebrated God's provision for the Israelites during their wilderness wanderings. You had water pouring and torch lighting, 
rituals that commemorated water coming out of the rock, God guiding his people by a pillar of fire at night uh, during the Exodus. Uh, but for Jesus, the festival is anything but an occasion for Jewish national pride or even for just reliving the past. Rather, he announces that he embodies the very essence of what the Jewish people celebrate. He's not backward looking, he's forward looking. Um, uh, he's one with the God who led Israel at the Exodus and he will lead his people in a new Exodus through his death on the cross. And so he takes the last piece of tabernacles through his earthly ministry as an occasion to reveal just that. And that is what John is trying to convey here. Uh, true, it's not Theology 101, uh, but certainly is a great lesson in advanced biblical theology. Now, halfway through the feast, verse 14. So you set the stage, um, and then he makes a, an appearance. He's delaying, right, his, his uh, travel to Jerusalem. But he does make his initial public appearance at the midway point of the feast. Uh, again, he weaves into his narrative, John does, a reference to a previous event, which is the healing of the lame man, um, beginning of the festival cycle, uh, when he says, I did one work, Jesus said, verse 21, and you all marvel at it. I think he's referring to the, the healing of a lame man. Um, Moses gave you circumcision, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath the man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a, a man's whole body well. Of course, you recognize the classic from the lesser to the greater argument here, um, uh, which Jesus uses skillfully against the Jewish leaders with an excessive concern for the law of Moses without recognizing its actual purpose, uh, because God's purpose for the Sabbath command was hardly to keep a long-time invalid from being healed. Jesus gives the example of circumcision, which was performed on the eighth day after a child was born, uh, Leviticus 12, 3. If that day fell on a Sabbath, right, something had to give, because those two commands collided. Should you honor the Sabbath, and refrain from work, the way the Jews defined it, or should he go ahead with circumcision, the infant boy anyway? Well, interestingly, and that's what Jesus is getting at here, Jewish first century practice, as we can see from the mission as well, held that circumcision was to go ahead, even if the eighth day happened to fall on Sabbath. So, even... The Jewish rabbis in Jesus' day believed that the need to obey the circumcision command overrode the command to observe the Sabbath rest. Interesting, right? And so in this way, and that's how Jesus argues a precedent had been set, the Sabbath commandment was not absolute, but it could be set aside in exceptional cases such as circumcision. And based on this precedent, Jesus argues very skillfully against his Jewish opponents that if it was appropriate to circumcise a small part of a person's body, why would it be illegitimate to heal a whole person? Lesser to the greater argument. You just marvel, among other things, how Jesus was able to be 
basically to beat the, the, the rabbis and scribes at their own game, right? It was even his, his, his exegetical skills and his logical uh, reasoning skills were so far superior uh, to theirs. And he's just lowering himself here to kind of engage them on this level of mere human reasoning. He didn't have to do that. It's very gracious uh, that he did. And so his point is, so why were they so rigid uh, not to allow for an exception in the present case, which was obviously of benefit to a person and didn't truly violate the spirit of a Sabbath command. It's, it's very hard to argue with this kind of reasoning, apart from the fact that it shows a lot of compassion and grace, which obviously the authorities lacked in this case. Um, just incredible fireworks display of, of Jesus' ability to reason from Scripture with people who are supposed to be the experts in that area. Okay, and then John uses various voices in the crowd at the feast as representative of various Jewish messianic expectations in the days of Jesus. That's what that section of, um, of John 7 is all about. And you, so you see, uh, you know, I have a whole kind of bullet pointed list in the Jesus of the Gospels at this point. Some are saying uh, when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from, so-called you know, hidden Messiah, chapter 7, verse 27. And of course, they use that as an argument against Jesus because they knew where he was from. So they're saying he can't be the Messiah because when the Messiah comes, nobody will know where he's coming from. But then other people are saying, well, uh, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than Jesus has done? Uh, of course, that echoes again, right, the whole idea of signs. And, and there's this implicit acknowledgement that Jesus sure did a lot of signs. You know, was that... Was that still not enough? Is the Messiah going to do even more? So John obviously uses that with some fine irony. Others are saying, well, uh, we th I thought Jesus was from Galilee, but doesn't Scripture say that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem? Again, John shows that that's uh, ironic because those people were just speaking out of ignorance here. Um, in fact, Jesus was born in Bethlehem and so forth. So Notice that those expectations were not only, you know, varied, in some cases they were mutually contradictory. And again, John shows just with irony that people were just confused about who the Messiah was going to be. So no wonder, right, they had difficulty with the Messiah Jesus uh, turned out to be. Of course, the lesson here is that, you know, when we come to Jesus, we ought to accept him. <laughs> the way he is rather than trying to, um, you know, um, squeeze them into our expectations. Um, so we've seen Jesus spoke up at the midway point, And then the second occasion, verse 37, John uh, speaks on the final day, the great day of the feast, so-called, uh, because tabernacles festivities lasted for a whole week. And the eighth day ended with, with just a whole uh, firework of activities. Um, and so it's fitting that Jesus, you know, makes one more final public de declaration on that, on that great final day. And uh, he uses Isaiah's language here. Isaiah was of a huge influence for John's theology. And, of course, Jesus is, um, you know, teaching as well. Uh, Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And then he asks, whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. And then John asks, this was a reference 
to the spirit, it would soon be given. Uh, most likely, um, you know, we don't have the quotes as the scripture says, but we can't really find it in the New Testament, that exact phrase. So most scholars take it as a, as a reference to kind of a composite references in Ezekiel and, and some of the other prophets. And so the interesting thing here is there's some debate in the commentary literature. Does that refer to Jesus himself? Does it refer to believers in Jesus, you know, after the spirit is given? I think probably the, the latter is more likely. Uh, so Jesus is here saying that anyone who believes in him, they will themselves become a life-giving source, a source of the life-giving message about the Messiah. Uh, and then seamlessly transitioning to the so-called paternity controversy and in chapter 8, verse 12. Um, and in essence, the debate revolves around the Jewish claim of descent from Abraham. Jesus acknowledges that, uh, true, um, the you know Pharisees and the authorities, they are ethnically descendants of Abraham, but... He argues that spiritually speaking, they're actually the children of the devil. I mean, you can see how that probably went over like a lead balloon there. Um, now, we know from the other gospels that generally the Jewish people did not view themselves as sinners. You know, sometimes it's in quotation marks. They look at other people as, as sinners, but not themselves because they tried to observe the law of Moses. Uh, but here, again, Jesus has this very intricate line of reasoning. He says, well, since the Jewish authorities opposed him who was the God-sent Messiah, that revealed that truly the spirit in which they operated and that, that guided them, that motivated them in their desire to kill Jesus was actually the spirit of Satan because... As we see in Genesis 3, Satan was a murderer from the beginning, in the verse 44. I mean, this is explosive stuff here. You can see that the gloves are now definitely off. It's one of the, of the highlights of that. You know, remember I talked about escalating animosity and, 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 and controversy. I mean, it doesn't get more escalated than that. They call uh, the Jewish authorities, uh, you know, uh, children of the devil. Um, and I think John wants to tell us, too, that there's really no middle ground. Either you're a child of God or you're a child of the devil. Media are not going to be that receptive to, to that approach, I would think, or, or others in the culture. But I think John is being very logical and theological and radical about that. And so he has this set of polarities, right? Either from above, you're from below. You either love or you hate. You're either in, in, light, in the light or in the darkness. You see that also then in the, especially in 1 John. Uh, you either follow Jesus or you're a child of Satan. Uh, sometimes people don't understand it. They talk about John being actually anti-Semitic, which is really ludicrous. You know, he was Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. You know, I think they don't understand this is not a matter of ethnic Jewishness. It's a matter of those specific Jewish authorities that ended up having Jesus crucified uh, being not made, truly motivated by love of God despite what they, what they claimed. Thank you for joining us today at Biblical Foundations. For more information, please visit the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern at cbs.mbts.edu. 
For further resources, also visit biblicalfoundations.org. Join us again next time at the Biblical Foundations Podcast.